Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in the synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them. This is the word of the Lord. When I was in high school, I had an English literature teacher named Miss Esslinger, and she, best school teacher I've ever had, and still to this day, I communicate with her often. She comes to the city once a year, and I spend time with her, have dinner with her, but one of the best lessons that she ever taught me was the importance of context when it comes to reading. We have authors in here, they know the importance of context, and so some of the exercises that my that Miss Esslinger would give us is, I remember one time we read the play, The Crucible, uh, Arthur Miller's play, which is about the Salem Witch Trials. And we spent two weeks, before we ever even opened that play, we spent two weeks studying the history of the Salem Witch Trials. In fact, we even took a summer field trip once to Salem, Massachusetts, because she felt, she knew that it was important for us to understand the context of that play We needed to understand the history of Salem and the witch trials. When we read A Farewell to Arms, one of the few books and authors that, you know, young, growing boys in high school that are trying to figure out masculinity, we loved Ernest Hemingway. But when we read A Farewell to Arms, we spent a week learning just the biographical details of Ernest Hemingway's life. And what we saw, what we learned is that sometimes his macho persona was actually a defense mechanism that he used to hide his insecurities and his depression. We also read Albert Camus' The Stranger, which I don't recommend if you want to smile at all for the rest of your life. But we spent a week on learning the philosophy of existentialism. I mean, a bunch of 11th graders reading Nietzsche. That's probably why I'm messed up. I'm just cynical and all of that. But existentialism is a philosophical school of thought which is personified in this novel through the protagonist named Monsieur Mossault, if you've read the story. And she did this, we did this with everything we read, we would study context, and the reason she did this is because she knew that if we were going to understand the plot or even the significance of a particular piece of literature, we had to understand the context in which it was written. So because story, whether it's fiction, whether it's nonfiction, whether it's a memoir, whether it's poetry, stories, teachings, characters don't exist in a vacuum. Context provides the lens for us to understand stories. And today we are beginning a sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount. This is an account of Jesus' most famous sermon. But today, we're not going to start actually with the sermon. As Rebecca read, we're going to start with what comes before the sermon. 
Because we cannot understand the weight of Jesus' words and let, without knowing the historical background in which they were spoken. But we have to begin with verse 17. Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now I want you to imagine what life would have been like for a first century Jewish citizen in Galilee, in the Roman Empire. See, these are Jewish citizens that have grown up their whole lives reading the Torah, the law, the book of the law. They've grown up reading the Tanakh, which is what we know as the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible. They know the promises of God. They know the stories of His salvation, His redemption, deliverance. They know the stories of Abraham. They know the stories of Moses. They know the story of stories of David. They know the stories of the prophets. They know all of this stuff. And they're living along the Sea of Galilee, which if you're going to be going on our Israel trip uh, in, a few, in February that I'm leading, we're going to go along the Sea of Galilee. We're actually going to go to the very place where Jesus taught this sermon. But they live along, these first century Jewish citizens, they live along the Sea of Galilee. And part of the, the culture of first century Judaism, they loved their family. They loved their heritage. They were proud to be Jew, the people of God. They were proud to be Jewish. Um, they, they, they were part of the family of Abraham. And they were living in the land. They were proud of the land that they lived in. God had promised their ancestors that land. And now they were living in it. But the problem is, is at this moment in time that Jesus preaches this sermon, they're not free in the land. They're not slaves, but they're not entirely free either. They were under Roman occupation. It was a militarized zone. I've been to militarized countries before, and it's eerie to see soldiers just walking around all of the time. Um, and, and they were under Roman occupation, and so every night there would be checks with Roman soldiers that weren't from that land, they would walk around from village to village and make sure that these first century Jewish citizens were doing as they were told. And these soldiers didn't care about their heritage, they didn't care about their history, and they certainly didn't care about their God. Not only that, Rome was taxing these Jewish citizens at exorbitant rates. And so many of them became extremely poor and in debt to the government. I heard one scholar say that fields that their ancestors once owned their families were now working in as slaves. That's humiliating. It's oppressive. See, it was not a pleasant time to be a Jewish citizen in the Roman Empire. It was demoralizing. It was heartbreaking. Their culture was being minimized, and they felt like their culture was, might being, be being lost. They were being taxed into poverty. But then all of a sudden, they start hearing this buzz about a teacher based in Capernaum. It was born in Nazareth, of all places. It's like this podunk town. And this teacher is going from synagogue to synagogue all around the Sea of Galilee, and he's teaching these sermons, and, it's, and people are saying that he's speaking as if he is one who has authority. Meaning that he's speaking as if he's the author of the Scriptures. And there's even rumors about him healing sick people and healing people from demonic possession, and healing paralyzed people, and healing people from all their afflictions. And the central theme of his message that is teaching, though, is, is this thing called the kingdom of heaven. And he, he says the kingdom of God is here. Repent and believe the good news. And what he's not saying, often in American Christianity, we think kingdom of heaven, we think, oh, that's where we go when we die. That's not what Jesus was talking about. Jesus was, he was saying, repent, stop, 
and reorient your life because not the, the kingdom of heaven is not a place you're going to go one day. He says the kingdom of heaven is here. It's at hand. It's here and now. Something new and something exciting is happening today. Reorient your life to that reality. And so for, in order for us to understand what this phrase, kingdom of heaven, or its synonymous term, kingdom of God or kingdom of Christ, for us to understand what this means and understand all the weight behind it, we have to go to the very beginning of the Scriptures. See, in the beginning, Genesis 1 and 2, it says that God creates the world out of nothing. Heavens, galaxies, the earth, the land, the sea, the animals, the plants. And then He creates the crown jewel of His creation, humanity. Land is good. Sea is good. Animals are good. The heavens are good. Earth is good. Humans, very good. We're the crown jewel of His creation. And He gives human, a, humans a higher status than the rest of creation. And He calls us to bear His image. What that means by He calls us to be like Him. There are ways in which animals and plants, they can, they can mirror the glory of God, but they can't bear His image in the same way that humanity does. And lots of philosophers have tried to explain that. I don't know exactly what that means, but I know that we were given a task to bear, Jesus, to bear God's image here on this earth. He calls us to worship Him, obey Him, to protect the earth, to cultivate the earth. Have dominion over the birds and the animals of the and the fish. Have dominion over the ground and the plants. And that doesn't mean dominion as in abuse the land. It means cultivate it, take care of it, protect it. And God positions Himself as the King of creation. And He calls us to honor Him as King by caring for His created world. And humanity in that moment has two options, okay? We have two options. We can honor God. And we can honor him as king and allow his rule and his reign. And we can allow him to define what is good and evil in this world. We can obey him. We can worship him as king. Or we can seek to be kings for ourselves. We can try to define good and evil for ourselves and our group, even if it's at the expense of other groups. Well, what does humanity choose? <laughs> Option two. See, it wasn't just because Eve ate a piece of fruit. See, there was something deeper going on. We were rebelling against what we were created to do. We were dishonoring God as king and seeking to be kings for ourselves. We chose option two. And so what we did, humanity did, is that we attempted to start an alternate kingdom without God. One teacher says, we staged a hostile takeover. The problem is, we're very bad kings. You know that? What Absolute power what? Corrupts? Absolutely. And the problem is we are bad kings and we have really bad judgment when it comes to defining good and evil for ourselves. And we have very bad judgment when it comes to defining for ourselves what is right and what is true in the world. See, the good world that God created, we began to destroy it. It wasn't very long after this rebellion that we started feeling shame. We started feeling depression. We started killing each other. Like literally, the next family, Cain and Abel like, killed his brother. And this goes on for centuries and centuries and centuries all the way to today. And the plot line of the rest of the Bible then is what is God going to do about this hostile takeover? What is God going to do about humanity wanting so badly to define good and evil for ourselves, but yet lacking the judgment to do it? 
How is God going to reestablish his rule and reign? How is he going to put his creation back to rights? And so God sets in motion a plan to reassert his power over all of creation. And it begins with a family. It begins with Abraham and Sarah. And he promises that through them, he will bless the world. If they will live under his rule, his authority, and under his reign, and under his definition of good and evil, he says they will be a light to the nations. And the family grows and God blesses them. Abraham has Isaac. Isaac has Jacob. God changes Jacob's name to Israel, which becomes the name of the nation. And it grows and it grows and it grows. And it becomes this large and powerful nation. But what ends up eventually is the nation of Israel ends up in slavery in Egypt under Pharaoh. And Pharaoh is a king, but he's not a king in the same way that God was. In fact, he's the antithesis of a godlike king. He's not just. He's not kind. He redefines evil and what is right and true for himself and for his group. And when he decides what's true for himself and his group, he begins to oppress everyone who doesn't fall in line with his way of thinking. And he begins to enslave other nations, and Israel is one of them. But God, being gracious and just, he raises up a deliverer from within named Moses as a deliverer for the people of Israel. And Moses, through God's spirit in him, Moses confronts Pharaoh and says, you will not defy the living God. Let my people go. And Pharaoh scoffs. He doubles down. He says, no, 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 I'm the God here. I decide what happens to your people. And so if you know the story at all, God flexes his muscle and his might. And he uses his very creation to war against Pharaoh and show Pharaoh who is boss. And in the end, Pharaoh is crushed under his own pride. And he demonstrates what happens when we seek to make a kingdom for ourselves. What happens is we end up on a path to destruction. God supernaturally destroys Pharaoh because Pharaoh tries to be a king for himself and oppress God's people. And Pharaoh is shamed, he is killed, and the Israelites are liberated. If you remember, he parts the Red Sea, sends God's people through the seas, they escape from Egypt, and then the people that are tormenting God's people, they're drowned in the sea. And God guides his people to freedom. And the people who were once slaves in Egypt are now free, liberated through the work of God. And the first thing they do when they get to freedom, the first thing they do, Willie, they sing a worship song. And the chorus of the song is in Exodus chapter 15, verse 18. It's the first time that kingly language is ascribed to Yahweh, to God. It says, the Lord will reign as king forever and ever. That's the chorus of their worship song. And I want you to pay attention here because this is what it means for God to be a king. It means that he calls a people unto himself. He liberates them from that which is enslaving them. They worship Him as King and He invites them to walk in His ways and to confront evil in the world. That's what it means for God to be King and that's what it means for God to create a kingdom. To call a people unto Himself, to liberate them, for them to worship Him and for, them to invite, for Him to invite them to walk in His ways. And then their, Moses, their leader, goes on top of a mountain He receives instructions from God on how to live, how to live under the reign of God. And we know this as the Ten Commandments and the law. But long story short, Israel fails to obey. And like the first humans and like Pharaoh, 
They seek a kingdom for themselves and they end up in exile in a foreign land called Babylon. Slaves again. They feel like all hope is lost, but the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, they come onto the scene and they say, they proclaim, they say, hold tight. God will reestablish his kingdom and he will reign and he will make things right. So that's the context. And back to the first century Jewish citizens. Now, here they are. They're under the oppressive rule of Rome. They're under a new king, not named Pharaoh, not named Nebuchadnezzar, but they're under a new king named Caesar Augustus. And they're under the oppressive government of the Roman Empire, and they've heard stories. At this point, it's 500 years. They've heard stories of their great-great-great-grandparents about the promises of God to reestablish a kingdom on earth. So that's the context. That's the background. Thousands of years worth of history. And now, this, they know all this. They're familiar with all of this. But now, in this moment, a man from Nazareth in a, living in a small village called Capernaum comes onto the scene and says, the kingdom of God, it's here. That's significant. It's here. You see, in our culture, we're told that Jesus was an inspirational, moral teacher. He may have been ahead of his time. He was misunderstood. And he was crucified because people didn't quite understand his teachings. That's not true. You don't get crucified. Jesus didn't get crucified because of the golden rule. Jesus didn't get crucified because he told others to love one another as themselves. Jesus didn't get crucified because he gave out some good wisdom. Jesus was crucified because he had the nerve to walk around the Roman Empire and say, I'm the king. I'm reasserting my rule and reign over creation. I get to define what is good and evil. I get to define what is true and right. That's what got Jesus killed. The kingdom of God talk. That is a loaded phrase. When we hear kingdom of God, we just think, oh, maybe that's heaven one day when we die. Maybe that's the church. What Kingdom of God. But to a first century Jewish citizen, that is a loaded phrase. Spiritually, politically, it's loaded. And so now we're, see, we're working our way to the Sermon on the Mount. But remember the Exodus story. What do kings do when they establish their kingdom? They call a people unto themselves. They form an alternate community. What did Rebecca read earlier? Jesus was walking around the Sea of Galilee, walking up to fishermen. Peter, Andrew, James, John. Follow me. See, he's creating an alternate community. He's creating a people under his kingship. He starts healing the sick, and they start following him. He gives sight to the blind. They followed him. He feeds the hungry. They begin to follow him. He heals the paralyzed. They begin to follow him. Jesus is forming a new community. It's a ragtag bunch of people. It's a bunch of poor people. It's a bunch of disabled people. It's a bunch of people that the world casts aside, but it is a community nonetheless. And it says in verse 25 that great crowds followed him from Galilee and Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. He's forming a new community. But secondly, kings invite their followers to live in a new way. They invite them into a new way of living. See, what does it mean to follow a king It means to reorient your life around the rule and the reign of that king. And this is why Matthew 5, it says, Seeing the crowds, he went up to the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples, he's a king, he's forming a community, they came to him, and he opened his mouth, and he taught them. 
Now, it sounds a little bit similar to Moses, doesn't it? Moses goes up to Sinai to receive the word of God and come down the mountain and bring it to the people. Jesus, however, goes to the top of the mountain and doesn't receive God's word, but gives it. This is the context of the Sermon on the Mount. This is a sermon for the community of Jesus. It is Jesus laying out what it means to live under his kingship. That's the context. We have to hear that if the next three months are going to make any sense. But I want to give us two points of application. Now that we have the context, two points of application that will help prepare us as we move forward into Jesus' teaching over the next few months. The first, and you've got to be prepared for this, the Sermon on the Mount is deeply countercultural and it's deeply offensive. See, one of the things I've always been confused by is everybody's obsession with the Sermon on the Mount, like people outside of the church, like their obsession with the Sermon on the Mount. Here's what I mean. I, when I talk to people who aren't Christians, especially when they find out I'm a pastor, one of the things I often get told is, oh, gosh, Christianity, it's all about telling people how to live their lives. I wish Christians would just pay attention to Jesus' words. Oh, I wish they would just pay attention to the Sermon on the Mount. Or people will say, Paul, you know, the Apostle Paul, all the other New Testament writers, they're so focused on our bodies. They're so focused on money. Forget them. Let's just focus on Jesus. He's all about love. And I'm not sure where it came from. But there's this idea that Jesus of Nazareth never makes any demands on our lives. He just celebrates us in whatever we want to do. And apparently, according to people I talk to, they think, people think the Sermon on the Mount is like a prime example of this. And I'm like, have you ever read the Sermon on the Mount? Like Princess Bride, Indigo Matoya. You keep saying Sermon on the Mount. I'm not sure it says what you think it says. Virginia Stem Owens was a literature professor at Texas A&M, or she is a literature professor at Texas A&M. And one of the things she does at the beginning of every school year with her freshman English classes is she assigns the Sermon on the Mount in the King James Version to her freshman classes and then asks them to write an opinion paper. And she assigns them the Sermon on the Mount, asks them to write this paper. And, you know, you think, you hear people, there's just this perception that Sermon on the Mount is just this beautiful language. And it, it's all about making everybody feel good. And, and she says, everybody, all the students are always so excited about the Sermon on the Mount because she asked them at the beginning of the class, what do you know about the Sermon on the Mount? They say, oh, it's a beautiful piece of literature. If Christians would just follow Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, the world would be a better place. Then they read it. And then they write an opinion paper. And here are some of the excerpts from some of these papers. The, church, the stuff that Jesus preaches is extremely strict. And it allows for almost no fun without thinking everything is a sin or not. <laughs> I did not like the essay Sermon on the Mount. It was hard to read. It made me feel like I had to be perfect and no one is. The things asked in this sermon are absurd. To look at a woman is adultery? That is the most extreme, stupid, unhuman statement that I have ever heard. See, I want to tell you up front that if you have a presupposition that the Sermon on the Mount is a sanitary collection of suggestions or wise proverbs for a blessed life, you're going to be offended and you're going to be disappointed. Because Jesus is the King. And this is a kingdom manifesto. And the Sermon on the Mount is a description of what it looks like to live in His kingdom. 
but his kingdom is upside down. And it's not going to support the way you often want to live. It says that power comes through service. Wealth comes through poverty. Comfort comes through suffering. See, everything on the Sermon on the Mount is counterintuitive. Jesus, what he's going to do in this sermon is he's going to force us to look deep into our own hearts, into the own darkness of our own souls, and he is going to redefine for us what is good and what is important in our lives. And he's going to make us angry. He's going to tell us what to do with our bodies. He's going to tell us what to do with our marriages. He's going to tell us what to do with our eyes and our thoughts. He's going to tell us what to do with our singleness, our money. Uh Uh-oh. He's even going to tell us what to do with our religion. And he's going to say to most of us, the religion that you practice is leading to death, but there's a religion that you can practice that leads to life. He's going to tell us what to do with our relationships. He's going to tell us what to do with our politics. And spoiler alert, Jesus isn't a Democrat. And Jesus isn't a Republican. He's going to offend us on no matter what side of the political aisle we sit on. Because Jesus is his own king. He doesn't operate in this kingdom. He's the king. He's going to tell us how to respond to people we don't like. He's going to tell us how to respond to our enemies. And it doesn't have anything to do with retaliation. It's turning the other cheek. And he will say that if you want to experience life in this kingdom, in his kingdom, it will require submitting all of these parts of your life to him. See, the Sermon on the Mount is not designed to give you suggestions for how to live a blessed life. The sermon is designed to bring you into an encounter with the living Christ. The living God. The same God who called fishermen and prostitutes and tax collectors and sinners to follow Him is calling you into this new life. And Jesus is going to force you and force me and force us to take a look at what we all think we know what it means to be human. And he will will ask us to rearrange our lives so that we will reassert him as king. Jesus uses this phrase often throughout the Sermon on the Mount. He's going to say, you've heard it said, meaning the kingdom of the world tells you that this is the way to the good life. But I'll say to you, and then he tells us another way. I think of MTV, Real World. You guys remember that show? You think you know, but you have no idea. That's Jesus. Jesus is going to call us, invite us into his way of life. But the second thing I want you to see is that sounds, maybe that sounds intimidating. But what you need to know is that the Sermon on the Mount is a sermon of freedom and liberation. See, I don't want any of all that stuff I just said to scare you off. In fact, I want that to make you want to know what Jesus says. Because yes, the Sermon on the Mount is going to offend you. And yes, the Sermon on the Mount is going to shake us a little bit. But it's God. You Wouldn't you expect God, when He tells us, when He intervenes in your life, that it would rattle you some? Jesus is going to say in chapter 7 that there is a way to live that's easy. Everybody's telling you that's the way you should go. He says the gate is busted wide open and it's full of people and they're walking on that path but the path leads to destruction but he says there's another way to live the gate is narrow not as many people are on it but man it leads to life jesus isn't creating rules out of thin air about lust and money and forgiveness and judging others and turning the other cheek 
just to give us arbitrary rules, just to watch us dance. He's not coming up with arbitrary rules. Jesus is saying to us, look, you've tried to be your own king. Humanity has tried over and over and over to define what is good and evil for yourselves. And time and time again, you've gotten it wrong. Pharaoh got it wrong. Israel got it wrong. America's gotten it wrong. And God help me, the American church often gets it wrong as well. And Jesus is saying, look around you. Are you satisfied? Are you satisfied with the way things are? Or do you believe that there's a better way to live? See, Jesus isn't handing down arbitrary rules. He is the king and he's showing us where the pathway to life is. The king came to earth, was born of a child, lived a perfect life, died the death of a rebel, but rose again to give us new life and joy. And the Sermon on the Mount is about the resurrected life. Jesus gives us new life through his resurrection, but then he calls us to live out this new life through the Sermon on the Mount. So the question then is, is are you tired of being your own king? Have you tried to define the good life for yourself only time and time again to find that that road brought you to a dead end? Or are you tired of serving lesser kings? Consumerism, selfishness, greed, gluttony, political posturing, politicizing every issue and being forced to pick a side, make this person your enemy because they believe a different thing about health care than you. See, our modern kingdom tells us that we've got to pick our enemies and put them to death. Our modern, modern culture says that we've got to buy and consume and intake every bit of entertainment and every bit of selfishness we can. How's it working out? Do you enjoy serving these lesser kings or is it making you more anxious? Is it making you more depressed? Is it making you more on edge? Do you enjoy serving these lesser kings or would you like a better one? Think again for a moment about the average Jewish citizen at this time in the first century hearing this sermon. They're poor, they're under the reign of an oppressive king and an oppressive government. Yet here is a man who is healing the sick of their diseases. He's hugging the lepers. He's inviting prostitutes to have dinner with him. And he's inviting you as well to follow him into his new kingdom. And these first century Jewish citizens, they don't like being under the oppressive rule of Rome. And they hear about this new kingdom and it's strange and it's weird. And it's led by a guy who's homeless, who's walking around the city, he's a carpenter. His, uh, his, it's weird, but it's a kingdom where they're welcomed. And it's a kingdom where they're lifted up. And it's a kingdom where the poor and the heartbroken and the meek and the hungry are elevated rather than beaten down. And this sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, it's difficult. And although it's counterintuitive, it would have been music to the ears of these first century Jewish citizens. It would have been balm for their weary souls. Are you hurting and broken within? Overwhelmed by the weight of sin? Jesus is calling. I cannot wait to study these words of Jesus with you. Let me just give you a teaser. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Bow with me.